welcome to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, I'm joined by friend of the show, Jack Sherlock, to talk about Denis Villeneuve's 2021 adaptation of Dune. We've had Jack on this podcast before, last year, to talk about David Lynch's adaptation of Dune, and it was a blast having him back on the show to talk about this newest adaptation. We'll be getting back to our David Lynch narrative soon, but for now, please enjoy part one of this in-depth look into the world of Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only a way thing in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. You need to be ready. You've never met Harkness before. They're not human, they're brutal. The Duke's son sees too much. This is I do. Kill them all. God in heaven. off the ground go this is an extermination they're taking my family off one by one let's fight like demons dad what if i'm not the future of house atreides a great man doesn't seek to lead He's called to it. But if 
answer is no. You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. If anything happens, will you protect Paul? With my life. Only together can we stand a chance. Welcome back to the show, Jack. How are you? I'm good, Jonty. Thank you very much for having me back. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, um, same. We've been chatting a while about doing it, and I'm glad we're finally doing it. Yeah, it's been what was it, episode seven? I think I wouldn't know <laughs> off the top of my head going through the Rolodex. I think it was episode seven, so this will be episode seventeen. So ten right. episodes ago. There, there you go. go. I listened back, which is never a good idea, <laughs> and it particularly wasn't in this case because I felt like I. Um, well, I sounded like a, well, have you read the book? <laughs> um, that's what people want. That's what. Yeah. That's the level of nerddom that we're and about. I, on I show. felt like I was just churning out random details in no particular order or shape or fashion, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll endeavor not to do the same. And you've got some questions that will maybe guide me a little bit better this time instead of me just taking over the podcast <laughs> and just going for it. Hey man, it was good. That was one of the, one of the better ones, like. Numbers-wise, one of the better ones last year, so... Well, hey, if that's yeah. the content that people are looking for, maybe I'll revert back to my old unhealthy habits. <laughs> so we're looking at Dune. Yes. Uh, last time we had you on, we, we were talking about David Lynch, Dune. 1984. 1984. Now Today we're going to talk about 2021. Denis Villeneuve. Um, so take me back to 2021. Yes. I'm assuming that's probably when you saw it for the first time in theaters. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Tell me what the experience was like watching this in theaters for the first time. Cause I, I will say as well, for people that perhaps haven't listened mm. to the Lynch one yeah. with you, you're a big Dune book fan as well as. Yes. Yeah. 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 Fan. Safe so to say, yeah. What was the experience of seeing this one? Like, um, well, the thing is, is that if I had gotten into the books earlier, I think this would have been like a much bigger thing for me. Like, um, but as it happened, I um, remember that I started reading the book and then about a week later, um, I saw that the, a trailer had dropped for June. And so for me, it was like in a way almost the perfect timing to get into June because some people have been into June since like, mm. you know, I think the first book was written in the 60s. Yeah, 50s or 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so for people who maybe were a teenager at that time, they've had to wait literally 60 years for the film. Yeah. Um, for me, I had to wait a year. <laughs> um, but it was still really, really exciting. And because June is such a... Uh, uh, there's so much imagery in, mm. in the novel and there's so like... Like it's just, just down to the, the worms themselves. Like you're reading on this page and it says, yeah, yeah, this worm's 400 meters long. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> What? Like yeah. it's it's actually really hard to kind of picture that. And then when you see um, the way that previous films have mm. depicted the the different characters, the worms themselves, just the world, um, the universe of Dune, and then see it in a modern context and the way that Denny dealt with it, um, it was incredibly exciting seeing the trailer and 
Yeah, my the first word that came to mind when you asked me what my theater experience was like, loud. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like they made a, like broken rules in terms of how loud they were playing the film in my theater. But I mean, the soundtrack is exceptional, and but the soundtrack is also loud um, in the film. So when the film is loud, um, yeah, it was... I would say actually at times it was borderline distracting because mm. I was thinking in my mind, holy shit, this is loud. Um, and that was at times pulling me out of it. But beautiful, beautiful film. Um, and every time I watched it, well, I've, I've watched it two times since. Mm. Um, regrettably, I'd, I'd actually rather I'd seen it more times. Just, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of rewatching films because there's so much out there that I haven't seen. Um, but every time... The two times that I've watched it since the theatres has just made me appreciate even more how stunning this film is. And if I had another chance to go back and watch it on the big screen, I absolutely would love to do that because it it's a film that deserves a big screen. And if you remember, this movie was supposed to come out before, co- well, during when COVID started. That's right. And Denny made a big deal about the fact that, no, this film is, is built for movie theatres. And there are other directors saying similar things but to be honest, I feel like of all the directors who said that, this film is the one that probably stands out the most in that argument. Um, I still think it's a bit of a uh, arrogant thing to say, but I I understand like how this film is best when it's viewed on the big screen, especially because of the extraordinary scale that he uses in the film. But I'm sure we'll get into that yeah. at another point. What about, did you watch it in theaters? Yeah, I did, yeah. and it's. This is one that I really wanted to see in IMAX. Yeah. And here in Australia, IMAX is has unfortunately not really been no. a thing for a little while. The, the big major one down in Darling Harbour has been under construction for years and years and years now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I drove past it and it looked like it it's was- It's almost done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, don't quote they, me on I mean, this, they've got I've, the IMAX logo on the yeah, side of the building now. So. Theoretically, July is when it's opening right, up okay. again. So I'm, I'm hoping- that we get to see the new Christopher Nolan movie on it, that it's open in time. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, right. But Dune is one of those ones that when it was showing in IMAX in the States, lots of people were actually saying that that thing you said about the sound being mm. so overwhelming that in IMAX it was almost too much. Yeah, right. Because, um, I, yeah, I just saw it in a regular old movie theatre. Um, Maybe they just... And I, yeah, yeah I, same thing. I remember thinking this is really incredible and so it wasn't just my theater no 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 no. i think it was part of the design of the movie was to have it being really really oppressively loud well yeah the sound in this film is is so important and is like part of the storytelling in a way which we were kind of talking about just before we started recording Mm. um so yeah i guess if there's any movie that's going to be really bloody loud it's a good one for it to be yeah. yeah yeah and i think i i've seen it I've only seen it once since I saw it in the theatre, which was in December or November last right year. Before right recorded. before we recorded. <laughs> Funny story. Yeah, no, we, we, got our, we got our tunes mixed up. So I watched it in preparation of for the last podcast that we recorded yeah. um, and loved it. I watched it on my relatively large 4K TV on a, yeah. on a nice 4K scan of the movie and, yeah, loved it. Um, yeah. I think the one thing that um, – <laughs> Living in a rental, I don't get to drill holes in walls, so I don't have a surround sound set up. I've just got a sound bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the sound was the one thing that I was like, I remember this being overwhelming in the yeah, theater, yeah, and yeah. not quite having the same experience. But You're better off putting, like if you've got decent headphones, putting yeah, yeah. Sound, like, um, as opposed to a sound bar, because 
I think you get more of that immersive experience. Like I've For got sure. a soundbar at home, which For I really sure. like. And I, I watched half the movie on the soundbar because mm. I had to split it up. I didn't have enough time to watch it in one sitting. But the first half I watched on headphones and mm. probably a better audio experience than when I had it on this soundbar, which, yeah. you know, is designed for film, whereas the earphones are designed for music yeah. that I have anyway. Um, but, yeah, it's it's still a pretty impressive job. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think even, even like because I when I'm watching – if I'm watching movies on Shutter or Mubi or two streaming mm. services, that I, usually that'll be either be on my – desktop at home or on my laptop as opposed to my tv and so i'm i am sort of in the habit of watching movies on uh, with headphones yeah yeah um depending on where i'm watching it and how Um, sure so that would yeah maybe i'll have to rewatch it again with some headphones and maybe so crank them and (laughs) get that full experience yeah 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 Yeah. um but yeah that second time watching it it was just as good i think i was a little i'm always it's interesting to see some movies you see in the theater and everyone loves like Mm. and then when they come out on home theater on st- or on streaming and everyone kind of revisits them, they kind of dip in everyone's estimation of how good it is. And, and often the theater experience elevates a movie above what it might be. Yeah, interesting. Object- but but this is one of those ones that and you're not the only person that, that said to me that watching it at home is just as good of an experience as watching in the theater. Avatar is yeah. one that sticks out to me as great movie to watch in theaters you watch it at home and it's a bit you know doesn't hold up it's funny um i was thinking about avatar before when i was talking about um films that should be watched in the theater um and everyone goes on about how visually stunning avatar 2 is Mm. for me i think dune is a more visually stunning film um and probably because it's doing less um Mm. and for me like when you're basically the whole film is CGI, it's harder to, I don't know. It doesn't feel as impactful or as visually stunning because it looks more fake. I agree. Whereas Dune uses a combination between yes. real and fake um, and it just works so much better. And the CGI in it is really good. Stunning. Like most films, there's clunky bits where you're like, that looks unnatural. There's one particular scene that I noticed on this uh, watch through and- it's funny because it, it, to me it should be a scene, I don't know anything about visual effects, but I would think it would be one of the easier scenes to do. It's just a panning shot when they're in the um, the thopters and they're going across the desert mm-hmm. and the desert just looks really blurry and unfocused and I was thinking maybe they've done it deliberately to try and show the speed of it, but it mm. wasn't that fast of a, of a shot, a, a landscape shot. So that was the only scene that I watched and I thought that doesn't look real. Yeah. Um, other than that, I think they do a really good job of... Uh, making everything look real particularly yeah yeah i mean i want to talk about the scale because oh for um, sure i want to talk about that that cgi thing though because that's one of the things that i really really love about this movie and Mm. avatar has actually turned out to be the perfect comparison for this because you're right avatar i watch avatar and i watch the most recent one in theaters like everyone else apparently because it's according to james cameron the most successful movie of all time who cares um but (laughs) it's got that like and at the most recent Ant-Man had a similar thing for me where it's got that kind of Star Wars prequel effect where you there's no re- – because there aren't any actual sets or yeah. locations, all of it is computer generated. Yes. There's no weight to it. And it feels a little bit like characters being stuck onto a um, screensaver as opposed yeah. to what Dune feels like. And this is as a result of – sets mm. that then blend into CGI to give you that sense of scale. Yeah. Um, so they're 
interacting with real things and real sets and real locations that then, as you look off into the horizon, stretch off into these ridiculously large, yeah. scaled-up uh, locations. Yeah. It just feels real and grounded and it has a bit of weight to it, whereas you see blue people flying around and swimming through the ocean, you're like, I, this doesn't feel real. Like no, it, I agree. It looks really cool and it looks exciting and flashy, but yeah. it doesn't have any real weight to it in terms of the story because you just kind of... I don't know where we are. I don't know where up is. I don't know mm. where down is. Like, yeah. So I think that's one of the things that I really love about this particular Dune is the way that it partic- – I mean, he he's done a similar uh, – Arrival is not mm. nearly as reliant on CGI but uses CGI in a similar mm. way where it adds to physical locations. Mm. Um, and Blade Runner as well uses mm. physical locations yes. extended with CGI yes. to really good effect, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the reasons I think – Villeneuve was a perfect choice for these Dune updates. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought about the hiring as with any kind of visual intentions behind it, but mm. from what you just said, it's a good point, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at his movies before that, it doesn't seem yeah. like an immediate match. Well, no, but, well, yes and no, yes yeah. and no, yeah, yeah. I think he does a good job of directing uh, quite dark foreshadowing films mm-hmm. and yep. June is very much that um, like it's a he's, he's good at building up attention and keep you guess keeping you guessing about where is this going to go um, I think of prisoners as an example yeah, of that great example um, where I mean prisoners is, is exceptional in the sense of until the very end of the film you still don't really know mm. exactly what's going to happen um, and yeah I think he does a good job of that um, but yeah, back to the the scale because yeah. this this was the thing that was just so remarkable to me. I've never seen a film do this as well as June does it. Um, we talked about scale when we were reviewing the 1984 June, and they do it with very different techniques in that, like with multiplying techniques of of crowds and stuff like that, um, as well as uh, some real life shots where they just go put heaps and heaps of people in one room mm. as well um but this looks at just the size of like how big would a spaceship need to be to carry a whole race of people to another planet well this tells you and the thing that i love it's almost comical the way that they do it that when they're arriving in on arrakis um you see this massive planet and you're like holy shit that's a big planet and this tiny little ship and then um, it zooms in on the ship and you're just like, okay, that's not a tiny ship. That's a massive ship. And then you see these tiny little ships come out of the ship yeah. and then you see them landing and it's like, then that's not the same <laughs> ship, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and they're massive. Yeah. And then the ramp comes down and these tiny little people come yeah. down and it's just like, they did such a good job of showing us like, this is where we're at at this point in time, mm. you know? Um which the, the year is 10,000 and something, something. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast, that's not 10,000, like 8,000 years forward from where we are. That's a lot further forward because they, at some point, restart the the years. With the guild? Yeah, so yeah. when the guild navigation starts, they restart it because it yeah. was considered such a sizable thing. Um, yeah, just yeah. as big as uh, Jesus Christ, perhaps. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so Jack recommended to me the Gom Jabbar yes. podcast. Have you I, listened to any of it? I listened to the the I think it's the first two, which are about like the timeline. Yeah, uh, right, like the right. Overall timeline yeah. of the universe. Well, that'll be yeah. And so that covered all of that stuff. Which yeah. I've read the first two books, 
and a lot of that stuff I'm hearing and going. There's so much that's oh my just goodness, this yeah. is completely yeah enriching. Someone's asked story. me like, how are you able to to like when I tell them about this podcast? They're like, how are you able to do a whole podcast on June? And I'm just like. There's so much yeah. that's not in the books yeah. <laughs> or they just like mention it in one word and then through research um, like of the things that Frank Herbert was drawing upon as well as um, the Encyclopedia of June, which is like a, a accompanying piece, which most people consider to be in canon with the yeah. entire series. There's some people who disagree with that, um, including Frank Herbert's bastard of a son. Um <laughs> who continues to drag his father's amazing work through the, through the dirt, but we won't get any further into that. Um, but yeah, it's, there's so much, so much, it's such a rich law, um, yeah. which is incredibly nerdy to say, but for sure it's, it's, it's incredibly like, it's a level of nerddom that I resonate with being a, a game of Thrones and song of ice and fire mm. nerd. Cause it's that same thing where there's a series of books yeah. with a whole bunch of law, but then there's this entire history. Yeah. Yeah, side. yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things I like, what well, I don't even, not to say I don't like it actually, but it's a point of difference between this film and the Lynch film is that in that law and in that history, there's so much that, especially non-science fiction fans mm. look at and go, what the heck? That is the weirdest. That, like even just the way that things are named, it's so strange. And one of the things that Villeneuve does with this one is presents it very flat and normal because that's how the characters in the story kind of perceive it because mm. it's just the world that they live in. Whereas the Lynch film that we talked about last time leans into how odd I see where is. you're coming from right yeah. Yeah. does this resonate with you because I can see you nodding and, and no 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 I, I, I thought you were yeah. coming from a different direction no that I I completely agree with you that they do a really good job of grounding everything without it being grounded if that makes sense like they do a good job of people just like you know like no one comments on the size of the spaceships that's right because it's just normal. It's just like yeah, yeah you know um and yeah, no. So I, I I do think it's it's a lot better at making it seem real within that universe, even if it seems absurd yeah. in ours. Yes. That's Whereas right. in <laughs> in the nineteen eighty four version, it's absurd in every sense. Yeah. Which when you hired a guy, but like that's David what David Lynch, Lynch was yeah, going exactly, for, you know. Exactly. So like credit to him, he yeah. achieved. What he it, was so I guess to it's achieve. not it's not really a critique or or a of either of them. It's more just this really interesting difference that yes. when you compare the two, when you compare the two movies, they're so different. Yes. And you kind of go, how can the same source have been adapted into the same movie twice, but both movies be completely different? And the answer is you just got two completely different artists at the helm who have, I think completely different intentions. Another in important them. point would be to make, uh, is that Denny actually adapted the book? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whereas David Lynch, I'm, got I'm really not, excited. I'm by, not convinced David Lynch ever read the book. Yeah, uh, I think someone explained it to him over yeah. a drunken text, and then he <laughs> he just wrote the script. Um, but yes, let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. Yeah. So I think the, the where I want to go next maybe is how you feel about this being split in two. Yeah. Because one of the very obvious critiques of the Lynch 84 one is trying that to do too much at literally 
the halfway point in the story, we've got 15 <laughs> minutes left in the movie and it just falls apart. So yeah. a, a, as, as an adaptation of the book, how do you feel cutting this in half with this film works or doesn't work? So I, th- I think it's definitely the right decision. Mm-hmm. I have a slight um, disagreement with where it was cut in half. Um and I, I suppose it's important to say from this point that there will be spoilers oh, about yeah. the second movie because we're going to speak about, like, it's impossible not to reference things that are going to happen. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to say that is to do with the next film is there's a, that I think that, and this wasn't my original idea. I heard someone else say this and I agree with it. I think a better point to have ended this film would have been where Paul's given his name as Paul Muad'Dib uh, because maybe we'll get into this more in in a bit, but I think that the way that the, I only noticed that this, this time round is when Paul and James are having their fight, the um, Amtal, the fight to the death. Um, once Paul realizes that he has to kill James, that's the only way he, it's either kill or be killed. That's when the music, because before then th- there's no music in that fight, which I think is really cool. It feels much more impactful. Mm. Um, but once he realizes that the music starts rising and you hear the Kwisa Tadarak start to sort of be chanted in the background. And my interpretation of that, which as I said, I, I only noticed this time is Paul starts seeing the fire. He starts seeing some of the images that he's been seeing. He starts seeing the bloodied blade. And I think he goes, once this happens, there's no way back. Mm. Whereas with the book, that sentiment is definitely much more placed in when he's given the name. Um, and in his visions in the book, Paul always sees that he's going to be called Muad'Dib. And in his head, he's like, okay, I am going to go through with this, but I'm going to try and slightly change it so that I'm not fully locked in. And he says, I'm going to call myself Paul Muad'Dib which he never saw in any of his visions. And so for him, that was his way of being like, I realize that once I go through this naming that I'm kind of locked in. So I'm just going to alter it very slightly to hopefully keep my options open. Um, and the book very much is exploring this idea of uh, predestination. And like, uh, if you have prescience, are you then locked into that future or are you able to change it? And the books continue to explore that throughout the Atreides mm. saga. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, I feel like it, it literally would have added another five, ten minutes maybe to the film. Which I sh- in a two-hour, I think it's two and 35. Yeah. I, isn't a huge man, Honestly, probably five. Probably five. Yeah. Um, I feel like they could have finished it with a ceremony where he gets given his name. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, that does happen after they have James's funeral, which is an important scene as well. Um, and maybe that's where they'll start off the new film. So, look, it, it's I I don't mind the ending because I know the rest of the story. But I was thinking this time around when I was watching it, if I didn't know the rest of the story, I would have been very unsatisfied with that as an ending. Even mm. if I knew that it was half the story, I'd still feel unsatisfied. And the the line from Charney being like, "This is only the beginning," I feel like it's so on the nose yes. that, like, given I think the script is written so well, and like, there's parts that were directly from the book, but there's also parts that they've written specifically for this film, completely new, and they do such a good job of blending those together that you don't even really notice. Like, they get the voice so perfect for so many of the characters to come up with that last, like, that feels like it was a studio line. 
That feels like the studio were watching it and they'd be like, yeah. you know what everyone needs to hear? They need to be told this is part one by and one of the main characters. From memory, I don't think we see her face as she says it. Like, I could be wrong, but which which would... I think it's one of the things where the lens flare goes over her face. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. so it's it really seems to me like it's a studio note mm. after the fact and they've gone back and dubbed that over. Because um, that stuck out to me too as... Which, d- it's such a shame because it's like the last... Yeah. Basically the last line. It's what, what you leave the cinema and, with. But how much better would it have been if it finishes with Paul looking at Jessica and being like, that's desert power. And mm. then it ends there. like Yeah. Um, like, Cause it, cause or, think- or he looks at Jessica and he goes, it's June time, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's Juning time. <laughs> I think like, because it, it's not a... I, I agree. I actually think having read the book and... I thought that that's where they were. So did I. I thought that that's it what it was going to end. And, and, then, yeah. and then move on to part two. But I think it does still kind of, like it still works. I don't think it's the best option. Yeah. But we do see part one as Paul's arc from being where he is at the beginning to then having to kill a man at the end. Yeah, it's a coming of age. That's right. So yeah, it yeah. still makes structural sense. But when you look at the story as a whole, mm. I agree. I think ending it, with another five or ten minute section, yeah, I just think would that like possibly make more. As, sense. as I said, it doesn't bother me too much, but I I wonder how much of that is the fact that I know the story, mm. um, and if someone didn't know the story, I like well, I know for a fact I've heard a bunch of people who haven't read the book say it was a really unsatisfying ending to the mm. film. Um, that first half of that film is phenomenal. Yeah, it is like, and I only really appreciated how good it was this time watching. It is so good, that first half of the film. It's so perfectly paced. It feels slow, but not too slow. It feels like patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wonder if if maybe they could have made some slight changes, but I, like, maybe gotten rid of the spider person. (laughs) I was going to ask about this (laughs) because I haven't read the book in a long time and I don't remember what the fuck that was. Do Do you know why you don't remember? Is it just not the it's book? It's not in the book. It's the weirdest edition. So this I, I did something from reading. one of the sequels. No, 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 okay, it's not. Okay. It's not. It's not. It's like the it's weirdest. It's not in any it's of them. just completely been made up. Interesting. So I, I did some reading up on this because um, there's a few things that I actually, I had theories about and I just read up to see what other people were saying. So apparently like one of the VFX artists was interviewed by like a magazine or whatever and they asked him about this and he said it's uh, one of... Well, it's basically the Baron's pet. It was a a woman that he basically experimented on, and that w- that used to be a human being, basically. Right. And he's turned her into that, and now it is his pet. And like, sure, it, it it's one of those things where it's like world building, but then they make it a part of the scene, mm. like. And and they also don't explain it, they which play, goes to what we were talking place about before. On it. Yeah, where it's it's lent into, but not in a way that's like, look how weird this is. Yes. it's just kind of a part of the scene. Like it would have been like there's a lot of stuff. Uh, it, the first thing that I think of is like Harry Potter. Yeah, in terms of how Harry Potter deals with lots of like weird things that are just like ran apart. Like it makes me think of that book that like has the mouth and tries to eat him oh, yeah. in the, third, yeah, yeah. the start of the third film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stroke the spine, you idiot. <laughs> exactly. But like no one came out of that scene going like, ah, the that book is going to come back in the final scene and it's going to be a big part of the plot. Like mm. that spider, the, the way that they showed it, it felt almost like 
Mm. Um, I wonder what that's about. Whereas it could have kind of just been like, um, it's there and then Moheim comes into that scene and she just like looks at it and it like runs away or something like that. But instead they they make a thing about, I don't which know. Which says to me that perhaps they're going to come back to that in part two. Maybe. I hope they way, don't. Which I hope they don't. A big departure. <laughs> yeah. Um, an interesting choice to, to, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's in a, in a movie that's for the most part so um, specific and yeah, tight yeah, to, yeah, the, yeah. to adapting it was a the weird source. Adaption, yeah. It's a weird addition to, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, but you, it's it's structurally really interesting that the big invasion with the Harkonnens, mm. is that, yes. yeah, happens that, that in, in most movies, that would be the big climax. Yeah. That happens like two thirds of the way through and then there's another... 45 minutes. Yeah, and it's probably why it feels a bit flat at the end because you have that big climax. Because it builds perfectly to that sequence. Yeah, and you know, if you were going to make three movies, you'd you'd definitely end up with the classic bad or like boring second film with Mm. this. But what you would have is a really epic conclusion to the first one. Where yeah. it's just like Leto dies, and it's like, okay, what now for Big Paul and Jessica? Like the right? Strikes back. Um, but yeah. if in a two movie format, you can't stop there. There's way too much to do after that. Like, yeah. really, that's the beginning of the story for Paul. That's kind right. of like that's when he goes off. By that's when he, yeah, it, it's up until of, that point. It's kind of he doesn't have any motivation. It's, it's Duke Leto. Leto is that how you say Leto? Yeah, it's he, he's the main character really up until that point in the story. More yeah, or less. yeah, like, he's yeah. the one driving the action. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. That's kind of when Paul becomes the focus of the story. Yeah. Um, literally, the he is no longer the heir. He is the, the, lead, the leader yeah, of, yeah. yeah so. Can we talk about their relationship? Yeah, yeah, please. Because I just think that they did such a good job. And we talked about in, in the, um, uh, the 1984 version how we just didn't care at all when Leto died. Like yeah. he just wasn't an interesting character very much. But the I mean, first of all, Oscar Isaac. I mean, he's just fantastic. He's just fantastic. Yeah. Like there's there's and uh, I could say that about a lot of the actors in this film, mm. um, or maybe not a lot. But there's a few actors where it's just like I can think of three straight away: Oscar Isaac, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin. Just mm. all three of them amazing at what they do and perfect for their roles. Mm-hmm. Like it was like they were born to play these roles. Like just brilliant. Um, but the the first like the first scene that you really get that idea of their relationship is the one where they're walking together um, mm. back on Caladan, and um, Leto just says this beautiful line that like literally made me cry in the theater. Um, he says, "A great man doesn't seek to lead; he is called to it, and he answers. And if your answer is no." you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my son. Mm. And it was just like, damn. Yeah, and that's in like the first 20 minutes of yeah. the movie. Yeah. You're like, oh, great. I care about these exactly. two people Exactly, yes, yeah. yes. And then the second one that I wanted to point out, which is a lot more subtle, is Leto is um, accepting the invitation, or not the invitation, the command to go to a tra- to, to Atreides, to Arrakis, Actually, this this may happen before or after. I can't remember. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, it basically later was like speaking, 
and it shows Paul and he's just looking at his father with just the most admiration mm. ever. And he obviously looks up to him so much. And it's just like, how, like, take notes. This is how easy it is to, I mean, easy. They did a spectacular job of doing it. But I'm just saying it doesn't take too much time to establish the, like, importance of a relationship to a character. Yeah. And it just makes you care straight away. Even if we didn't get to see Oscar Isaac naked. <laughs> Which, let's be real, that's why we care that he died because we wanted that in part two. Let's be real. Look, I'm going to be honest. I know, I know if you guys are not going to be honest, that's fine. But I'm going to- I'll be honest for you. <laughs> I'll say the thing you're too afraid to say. Is it, that's, it's a little detail, I guess, by the by. But him getting stripped down, is that in the book? No, I, I have no memory of that a, in the book. It's a great idea just to take advantage of the actor while you got him there. You know, like- <laughs> Pay no. all that money to have him on set. Like- <laughs> Um, it's not in the book, but, um, well, that I remember. Yeah. I, I don't remember reading no, the I book either. So. Um, um, yeah. But I think that's, but it's, uh, it works like, in a, like all jokes aside. Yeah. Like basically the Baron is trying to take away everything from the Duke mm. and like the metaphor of stripping the clothes off him is very much in line with that idea. It's like he's literally stripped him bare yeah. of everything. Yeah. Oh, it, so, made, it makes complete Yeah, it's sense. not just yeah. it's not just like nudity for the sake no. of nudity. No, no. Um, no. Um, I think going back though, but even if it um, was, I'd be okay with it. <laughs> We're here for it. Um, <laughs> I, the relationship thing, and I think that's Villeneuve to me is such an interesting choice and a great choice for this um, and the series as a whole is. He's worked in. He'd done two science fiction science fiction films prior to this, mm. um, and even before that, in his more grounded films, although I'd hardly call Enemy a grounded movie, is all. If you to do grounded, uh, do Enemy, Enemy, yeah, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, that's such a weird movie. It's weird, hey. But um, it's all. I need you to. Sorry, I need you to review that film so I can sure understand what the hell was going on because I'll add it to the list. Okay, yeah. please do because yeah. that is a. Freaking weird. I'll explain film. it to you off camera, off off mic afterwards okay, cool. as well. Um, but it's all completely character driven. Yes, yes. And it's all like, it, and and that shows not just through the writing, but also through the way I think that Villeneuve directs actors. Yeah, he's very empathetic and works very closely with actors on where the character is at that point in the film, in the scene that they're shooting. Mm. And so, even with something as huge and vast and epic as Dune. It's all still directly character-driven, character yeah. which I think you lose a bit of that in the in the Lynch film. Just to just put, a bit, to put yeah, it lightly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah because I, I mean, Arrival is one of the most emotionally draining, and mm. like I I bawled my eyes out when I saw that in the theater. Like, yeah, um, and that's a big science fiction movie about yeah, aliens, yeah, yeah. but at the end of the day, it's about Amy Adams and a kid. Like yes. that's that's yeah, what yeah. the movie is yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and you you could, and I'm not the first person to say it's just what the movie's about, but it's about Paul coming to terms with his legacy. It's not about, I mean, there's lots of things that Dune yeah. is about, but more so than it is about, look at this cool science fiction world and big explosions and shields. Like that stuff's all in there and that's great, but it's there to serve the character journey. Um, and obviously as you go through into the sequels, yeah. that changes. Um, I think that's. I think that is the surface level. Great, because because yeah. we talked about this last time as well. Carl McLaughlin yes. as Paul yeah, yeah. 
is the Star Wars hero. No, but but uh, like I, I don't think that anything that you just said is mm. saying that Paul is is that his destiny is to be a hero. I just think that for for me, and maybe mm. this is just the nerd I'm speaking. I think that there's so much going on in this film, and Paul exploring the destiny that's apparently been laid out for him mm. is just one part of what's going on. Like there's so much being explored, and I would say that most of the themes and stories lie in the exploration of power and manipulation Mm -hmm. than in one person's destiny. Mm -hmm. Um, Because without the power and manipulation, this destiny doesn't even exist. You know, without the Bene Gesserit, um, which we like hear straight out in the film, you know this if you read the books, but um, they explain it in the the film, without the Bene Gesserit laying the foundation for this Messiah to come along, like they came up with this. So, Mm -hmm. Paul arriving and people calling him the Lisa and I Gaib. Um, I th- said that wrong. Lisa, I, G- I can't say it, whatever. You know, what I'm talking it's about. It's easier to read than Lisa say. and I Gaib, something like that. Yeah. Um, which means the uh, the out out world of prophet or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, the the Messiah basically from off world. Um, that doesn't exist. Like, there's no kind of Paul never convinces the Fremen that he is a messianic figure. Just by himself. None of this story happens if not for the Bene Gesserit trying to manipulate. And this is the thing, is that we see this happen at Arrakis, but what we don't know is that the Bene Gesserit do this everywhere. Mm. They create these these myths everywhere and religions where they know them back to front. And the idea is if they are ever in need of the people from those places, they just play into the legacies that have been laid out before them by them. And the people are like, these are our traditions that we've held for hundreds of years. You are a messiah. Mm-hmm. So like the the very intriguing thing about Dune, um, which the David Lynch film completely misses, is hang on a minute, is this real? Because we've been told that that Paul's story is basically just a like thing that's been laid out in front of him. But, hey, he does have prescience. So what, is he a messiah? Like, is he actually a, a godlike figure? Because he's he's fitting a little bit too seamlessly into this idea that, like, into this prophecy that he only found out about a couple of months ago, you know? Um, and so I think that the, the story of Dune is really about political manipulation um, and power, and it's a tussle of power between different forces, which the forces that we're introduced to in this film are really the Atreides, the Emperor, um, or the Imperium, uh, the Bene Gesserit, and the... What's the Baron's people called again? Harkonnens. Harkonnens, yeah. So they're the four powers that we're introduced to in this film. Mm. As we get into the second film, we'll find out, I'm guessing, more about the Guild, who don't really have... They don't have anything to do in this film, really. Um and we'll find out maybe about uh, probably actually yeah that that'll probably be the only thing that really comes into in, in the next film, um, yeah. but but different powers will come forth and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, like I, I think Paul is just the the main example in the film of this idea of exploring power, and then there's all sorts of other themes like predestination and stuff like that, which I've already mentioned, but. Um, yeah, it's such a complicated story. It's really hard to... It's one of those things, if someone wants to ask you, what's Dune about? Like, if you really... Appre- like, 
Maybe if you don't have a strong attachment to it, you could just give a really like Surface streamlined answer. Version, yeah. But if you really care about the story and have sort of read into it and appreciated the complexities of it, it's so hard just to give a, a one story because yeah. there's so many things happening within the film. Mm. Um, and that means that whenever someone makes a adaption of it, they have to cut some things out. Yeah. Um, mm. Which... I would like to talk about, but I've been talking for a while, so I want to well, have you uh, jump back in. Th- this is a, a weird comparison, but this has just reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen The Last Temptation of Christ with Willem Dafoe. I haven't, but the, I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. It's, it's really, really good. And it's also- really, I know what it's it, about. Yeah. And yeah. it's really interesting to read about because of the reaction that it yeah. caused. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's very controversial. Um, but there's a scene right towards the end, which for people that haven't seen the film is- um, Essentially, it's not an adaptation of the gospel. It's an adaptation of a novel, which is kind of reimagining the person of Jesus and underlining his humanity. We yes. love talking about Jesus as the son of God, but yeah. we also, to go all theological for a second, he's 100% man as well as 100% God. So therefore, that's a paradox. We don't know how to understand that. We kind of lean in on the divinity side of it. So the, the story is, what if Jesus is tempted as he's dying on the cross, um, to just jump down and not go through with being crucified. And so we see the last 20 minutes to a half hour is this extended, I guess you could call it a vision, where he grows old and he Mm. marries Mary and has a child and they have a family and he grows old. And as he's an old man, um, I don't remember which disciple it is, as one of the disciples comes up to him, um, doesn't recognise who he is, and he's like, I'm Jesus. And his disciple says, no, 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 Jesus died. The whole revolution is based on this person of Jesus who died and rose again. And he's like, no, no, that never happened. I'm, I'm telling you, this is who I am now. That never happened. And his response is, well, it doesn't matter because there's an entire religion now based on this person yeah. and it doesn't actually matter if what I'm saying is it's true anymore. Reality. Yeah. Because what it now means to so many people is more important and than the, the reality. Like, this is all all stuff that can be extracted from the story. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things like like an English class where it's just like, did the author really intend this? <laughs> For me, I think Frank Herbert intended most of what we draw from that novel. But yeah. I definitely think that that's a theme that could be um, yeah, expanded upon and, and had a, a close look at. Um, and this this is I have a question that we might come back to later about part two specifically. Do you see this film as laying that groundwork for that complexity of Paul as a quote unquote messiah? Like, yeah, look. So there's um, there's one contradiction in his character, which I'm really hoping is a deliberate contradiction to, mm-hmm. to show his complexities. Okay. Um, and that's when they're in the, um, the, the base, the Fremen base at the end, the um, ecological testing station that they're in. Um, and Paul basically makes a move for the throne. Mm-hmm. He says to Kynes, Liet Kynes, he says, would you testify against the emperor? Um, if the other major houses find out that the emperors tried to take out one of them, then we could join together and take them out. And then um, his mum, Jessica, says, well, that would just produce all our chaos. And then Paul says, well, the emperor has um, a young daughter. She's not married. 
what if I married her and like that's basically my deal with the emperor and like Kynes literally says you're proposing that you would be the one to rule the and it's like Paul intimates that he isn't even wanting to be the duke and then all of a sudden he's willing to become mm. emperor yeah. and it seems like a bit of a contradiction um, and it also seems as if in that moment he the 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 guy who has been criticizing his mother ever since he found out that she had been scheming and basically making lots of comments about how the Benny Gesserit is just about obtaining power and that's all they care about in that moment he makes that play mm. and i find that a really interesting moment in the film and at first i didn't like it because i felt like it was a mistake mm-hmm. but this time watching it through it didn't feel quite as out of place um and i'm hoping that that's something that they'll explore because um once again spoiler alert for the second film he does become emperor mm. um and there's definitely once he becomes emperor and they'll explore this in messiah as they do go ahead and make that third film on messiah um that he is definitely a reluctant empire mm. uh, sorry emperor. emperor um so this idea that he in that moment is willing to take it on um, without even being asked. So it's not really that reluctant if he's brought the one who's suggested it. It's almost impulsive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that I, I, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's David Fincher speaks a lot about, he, he has been working a lot in TV recently as opposed to films because mm. he feels like it gives, it gives you more time to show characters saying that they're one thing but then doing the opposite yeah and, and if you only have one example of it then it seems like it could be a mistake but if we were to see that happen throughout the next couple of films and yeah. yeah it would it would make me feel more like okay this is interesting they're exploring the duality of this yeah. character because Carl McLaughlin doesn't seem like a real person he seems like a no. 2d character no yeah, whereas yeah. when I watch Paul in this adaptation he feels real and i think it's because of little contradictions like that because we say and do things in our lives all the time that contradict because we're complex yeah and life is complicated and i think this does a and once again i think this comes down to not only does villeneuve deeply appreciate and understand the source but he also understands how to show human behavior on Mm. film and so i think due to those two real i think really important elements coming together that's a lot of a lot to do with why i think paul is such a good screen character in this version especially i love Carl McLaughlin, but especially compared to yeah which because paul isn't a Carl McLaughlin. yeah right? that's right that's right and paul, I, I paul's a misunderstood e-boy and like <laughs> it's not a phase mom yeah. like um I joke, but I kind of don't at the same time. Like, he is a very complex character who, in the book, at this stage, he's 12 years old. Yes. Right? So, he's he's not this in in this rendition, obviously, but he's still a kid, um, and he's still making his way around the world, trying to figure out what he wants. He's just found out his mother has been lying to him his whole life. He has a line where basically he says to her once he's found out that I was all just part of your plan, which I almost feel like gets brushed over because they just cut scene there. Mm. And I was like, that's such a powerful line that in that moment he feels, whether this is how he still feels, in that moment he feels like his mother only had him so that he could become this thing instead of having him because... She wanted a son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and then he loses his father. Yeah. Um, so like he he's basically his whole life has just been torn apart. Um, it makes sense for him to be making a rash decision, like saying, "Oh, I'll just be emperor." You know, mm. maybe that's in that moment that's the only thing he feels that will be able to stabilize everything is if he has all the power. Um, so it it could definitely be canonized in a way that feels very natural. It it was it raised questions in me when I first saw that scene. In fact, mm. the first first time I saw the scene, I went, "That doesn't make sense." The second and third time, I'm like, okay, maybe they know what they're doing here, but it just feels like something that that needs to be addressed going yeah. forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on in terms of this movie as a part one? Because I I often actually have a active dislike, not even based on the movie itself, but of part one movies yeah but i think this kind of actually sidesteps a lot of the criticisms that i have of those types of movies yeah um like i i think the deathly hallows part one is one of the better harry potter films Mm. but it loses a whole bunch of if we're going to give it a star rating it loses at least three stars out of ten because it just ends yeah whereas i think this as we kind of already covered structurally makes sense, even though we were talking about yeah, you know, yeah. some things that... You can pick holes in it. You can still pick it holes It holds in up. It. Yeah. Um, as a part one, does it overall feel satisfying to you in terms of setting up part two? Because as we've already kind of hinted to, part two has a lot of narrative hurdles that it needs to clear mm. for it to land. Look, I, I would say yes at this point, but really we have to see part two, honestly. like Until, so, until we see part two, we can't properly evaluate this film because it's not a standalone yeah if this was just like june one then we could view it as a standalone but because it's a part one it's really hard to properly analyze it without seeing part two but having not seen it i would say that to me it feels like it does a really good job um first half is incredibly strong second half is strong just not as strong um and Look, it's got me very excited for part two, which I guess is what it's supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we can talk about specific narrative things, but what when we looked ahead to part two, what are the important things for it to, like, in, if we're talking broad stroke things, how what are the some of the important things that it needs to hit for it to be successful as an adaptation, do you think? I want to see the fall of Paul. I want to see Paul go down a dark path and I want us to empathize with him, but I don't want him to be heroic. And Mm. from what I've seen from the way that they're depicting him so far, I have faith that they'll do that. They may not do it to the extreme that it could be done. um, And maybe they'll leave some room for that in the third film. Um, Gosh, I hope there's a third film. Well, look, I mean, I think I think that is what they're setting up. They have to. Yeah. They have to. Because like, there's enough in this part one that is hinting yeah. towards Messiah. And, and I've always said to people, like, Messiah, like, you, June doesn't fully make sense, not fully, until you read Messiah. It recontextualizes yes, it. Yes, it yeah. completely recontextualizes it. And it destroys the hero myth, yeah. which I appreciate so much. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best things about June is it's not a hero story, yeah. you know. Um, 
not from a Joseph Campbell standpoint, but from a, you know, heroic. Yeah, yeah. Paul is not a heroic character. He's not Luke Skywalker. Yeah. He's not Darth Vader either, mm. but he's closer to Darth Vader than Luke Skywalker, you know? I mean, you could call him an Anakin Skywalker figure. Well, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, Darth, I should have said, you know, the Sith yeah. or something Actually, like Anakin that. Skywalker isn't, isn't a terrible comparison. Exactly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny that. Um, yeah. Given all the comparisons between Star Wars and June, and June as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I, so the first thing I, I want to talk about my biggest criticism of this film and yeah, it's please. related to this question because yeah. when I first saw this film, I th- thought to myself, okay, I really hope that they address this in part two. But after watching it two more times, I don't think I'm going to be satisfied by it. And it's Jessica. Okay. Which is Rebecca Ferguson's yes, character. Yes, yes. Yeah. Paul's mum. Yeah. Um, the first time we see Jessica is at the dinner table. Well, dinner table. Yeah, they're having breakfast, her and Paul. She's perfect. She is driven. She's kind of cold. Not completely cold, but definitely um, withdrawn and feels like her role as a mother is more functional than emotional. And it's perfect. That's who Jessica is. She is a cold, calculated character who at the end of the day will mostly do the right thing mm. but she cries about four five times in this film and for me it it shows a a fragility in the character that Jessica never shows in the book we know it's there but she never shows it and that's really important she doesn't allow it to come over her um and I, I just, I, the first time I watched it, I thought, okay, maybe this will be her arc that she'll have like an empowering, like almost feminist arc where she becomes this like female leader, but that doesn't really line up with her character either. I just, I don't, I just didn't like how emotional she was because she's quite emotionless. That's kind of how she is. Um, and even though we get to see that she does have an empathetic side underneath her, that she does sort of have a humanity to her. A lot of her humanity has been driven out by the Benny Gesserit training. And I just think we see too much humanity from her in this film. Um, yeah. In, and yeah. Not even just from a, her character point of view, but in terms of portraying the Benny Gesserit and, what they are like, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's less. It's almost as important in how it isn't an accurate represent representation of them as a yes, group as much yes. as her as a character. I, yeah. So we see um, Reverend Moheim, um, who is let me just say absolutely fantastic in her role, and I want to yeah. get her name um, uh, so that I don't forget. Well, I have forgotten it clearly, but I want to read it out because she deserves. My praise, which is all that matters. The Charlotte Gainsbourg character, yes, the, with the um, I'm going to call it the spiky needle thing. That's not what it's called. It got, it's well, the that's Gumjabar. the Gumjabar. Gumjabar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Charlotte Gainsbourg. She's amazing. Yes, and no, Charlotte Rampling. Rampling. Her name. I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm getting my Lars von Trier act. So I want to give her so much credit because not only did she play the character well, but you were able to understand what the character was thinking. Without lines, through a meshing, mm. she was still able to portray yeah. such brilliant, like, body acting. And you could just, oh, she's brilliant. And especially in the Gomjabar scene at the turning point where Paul kind of 
the fire goes and, and yep. then the music just goes burn, you yeah. know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he kind of like gets a steely look in his eyes and she's like taken aback, yeah. but it's subtle. Yeah. And you can still tell through the, mar- and it's, oh, it was the, through the veil, I should say. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So she, Jessica isn't supposed to be like her, right? She is cold. She's, she's the coldest really. Like, um, but Jessica should be closer to that, you know? Yeah. She's more Benny Gesserit than mother. Mm-hmm. And in this film, she's more mother than Benny Gesserit. Mm-hmm. And that's my problem with her as a character. Um, she's such a, a, I want to say strong character, but I don't want to feed into that like sort of cliche of mm-hmm. um, strong female characters are ones that aren't emotional. Cause that's not what I mean in that at all. I'm not saying that her emotion weakens her, um, but it weakens the persona that Jessica tries so hard to hold up. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's so important going forward as well. Like going into some of the later books as well, like her distance and the way that she becomes colder, particularly after Leto dies is a massive, massive part of her role as a mother. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, that's my biggest criticism. And to be honest, I think the reason why I didn't enjoy my first viewing of the film as much, I still enjoyed it a lot, to be clear, but I didn't enjoy it as much as this time, was because it comes out of the blue in the Gomja Bar scene. Because um, before that, I'm like, oh, yes, Rebecca Ferguson is playing her perfectly. And then the Gomja Bar scene happens and she's crying outside the door. Yeah. Um, and it just felt... Like I understand the emotional um, intent because it's like she feels at that point that she's just killed her son. Yeah. So I understand the emotional reason for it. Don't get me wrong. But as I said, she's Benny Gesserit first, mother second. And maybe they do show that through her decision making. Mm -hmm. But I just felt like I wish that the Jessica that we saw in that first scene was consistent throughout the whole of the film but she just isn't, in my opinion. I, I wonder if, and this is a charitable reading, this could not be the case, um, but if what they're going for is, in this first film, showing you more of her humanity this is so, what that, I, so yeah. that when her humanity gets pushed aside and snuffed out more as she embodies that role as the Benny Gesserit moving forward yeah. and embraces that more, it has that impact of, so you've seen her as mother and yeah. then when she starts to push that aside, that resonates more. So, so this yeah. is what I thought the first time I watched it, mm. but I think, and maybe I am in this sense being too loyal to the, to the novel because it makes perfect sense in the film that she is the way she is. But I love the character of Jessica in the first book. Um, and I feel like they maybe missed a step and maybe, Maybe the decision was we've got too many cold characters. You know, we've got too many people like Gurney who like that really funny line, Smile. I am smiling. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. that's very funny. That is, um, yeah. There are a few like the, um, when the, one of the sand people comes in and not sand people, what are they called? The, I'm thinking the Star Wars. One of the Fremen <laughs> comes in and spits on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. And they take it. As Still a fence. Yeah, but that's that's from the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. then um, Duncan Yeah, yeah. We take that in yeah. the... Well, yeah, but the, the part that I find funny about that scene is not actually that first bit. It's um, 
it's Oscar Isaac's spit where he goes like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's so like, like there is. Was that necessary? And know? it's it's not added in. No, no, to, no. And it, Duncan, Duncan, and Paul, they've got a funny relationship. Like that scene yeah. where he's just like, "Oh, you put on some muscle," and it's like, no, "Really? No, no, no." <laughs> yeah. So like that stuff is there in the material. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think but, that that's something that the Lynch, I think, misses out on. Yeah. There, there's lots of I think. I think still intentional comedy in terms of like yes. how bizarre things are in that movie, but it doesn't hit those like actually character beats but, of But can I humor. say though, if if the decision to make Jessica a more emotional character was because they felt like other characters weren't as emotional, mm. then I would straightaway bring up the Baron and Piter. So Let's be clear. The Baron in this film is so much better than the Baron in like. I would agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I would say they they went too far the the other way. Okay. Like they did some things really well. Like they got the perfect thing with like the scheming side of the Baron. Like mm-hmm. you can tell that he's a lot more intelligent, a lot more scheming, a lot more like plans a lot more. Um, they got the fact that he's terrifying. They got that perfect. But I feel like that was they did that more down to his appearance than anything else. Um, Which, let me just say, he looks absolutely fantastic. But the Baron is still has charisma to him. Yeah. And this Baron couldn't convince you of anything, really. Like, he doesn't have charisma. Um, It's much more, like, authoritarian and intimidating. You could have definitely brought some energy back there where, so, for example, the Baron and Piter... Well, Piter in this one is just, I don't know. I feel like they wasted Dave, what's his name? Batista. Dave? No, no. Bash, oh, sorry. Bash, um, um, I, ca- I can never remember how to pronounce it. Bashmouth. I don't know. Yeah, Something yeah. like that. Polka dot man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he's he's a fantastic actor. He's, and he and shows up a lot in Villeneuve films as well. Yeah, so, and he's really yeah. good at playing very mentally unstable characters. Yes, yes. And Piter is a very mentally unstable character. And he would have been perfect if he played that role- like that because Piter is incredibly eager. To, he's what's called a twisted mentat in, the, in right. the books. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's very egotistical. He tries to claim that the Baron's plan is actually his own plan in the mm-hmm. book. Um, and basically the Baron takes the piss out of him like quite a bit. Um, and it's quite funny. Um, and I feel like they missed a beat there. Like mm. you've got two characters that could have brought a lot more charisma and, um, also brings humanity a little bit. Yes, to, to, which I understand. They're pretty unambiguously depicted as the bad guys. Yeah, and I, that was what I was going to say as well. Is that um, I love the set design. I love all the outfits and everything. The costuming is brilliant. But I, what I will say is, it is very much like good guys, bad yeah, guys. But yeah. to be fair, Frank kind of wrote it that way. Mm-hmm. If we're going to criticize like the the film that would be a criticism that could be leveled at the source material is the bad guys in, in June are often like just the worst. (laughs) Like, and we all know through, I mean, to be fair over, over half a decade more of literature that the most compelling villains are always the ones who think they're the hero. Yes. Um, or you can at least kind of, um, empathize with slightly. Um, there's no empathizing with, the bad guys in this film. No. They're all just horrific. Um, And the Baron in particular really reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen Apocalypse Now, but really reminded me of Marlon Brando as, I think his name's Colonel Kurtz in in Apocalypse, where he's just 
mysterious and shadowy and mm. intimidating and just terrifying to yeah. look at. And there's one shot in particular which reminded me almost shot for shot of Apocalypse Now when he comes, he slowly comes up out of the bath. Yeah. I um, noticed the sound design on it this time, which I'd never heard before. So when the the um, suspenders come on, which it, is mm-hmm. it suspenders? Is that what they're called? They uh, clip into his back, right? Yeah, but you hear like a cracking noise, almost like his back's cracking. Mm. And it's quite quiet and I never heard it before, but I heard it this time because I had the headphones, headphones on during that section. Yeah. And that was like really unsettling. It did kind of sound like he was like cracking his back, like as, but it was just, you saw them turn on and each time they turned on, it was like. Mm. And uh, that makes a whole lot more sense. That whole, the fact that he is so large that he needs this apparatus to yep. move around in this film, that is, that feels grounded and yes. quote unquote normal. Yes. It just feels like a part of that world. Whereas well, that's again, because he's not just going, Wee! That's right. And when you compare it to the other one, he's just flying around for no reason. <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. That has no narrative reason in that movie for him to be flying no, around. No, Whereas no, no, no. in this, it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. It's just to add to the absurdity of the character in the first yeah. one. Yeah. And um, I think what, what's interesting about this one is it, and, and we see this again when the Duke um, bites on the tooth. Yeah. Um, he, it makes him vulnerable. Yes. He's this intimidating villain character, but he also has this- Yeah. Well, I mean, what they do in the first Achilles one heel. is- Sorry, the first one. Um, in the Lynch film mm. is that Leto is so out of it that he thinks that Piter is the Baron. And so it kills Piter. If you remember it, it sort yeah. of flashes back between yes, their faces. That's right, that's and right. he kills Piter by accident and the Baron escapes. Whereas in this one- it shows that he has his shield on. And as the smoke comes out, it goes a tiny bit red, but clearly the shield does just enough to save him. Yeah. And when you see Pyder, once you come back in, um, like his eyes are just burned out of their sockets. Yeah. His mouth is completely blackened and yeah. everything. So like um, some pretty intense poison right yeah. there. There was a slight laugh that the movie got for me when you see the Baron chilling up yeah, in the no, corner. <laughs> me too. Yeah. But it's also uh, the, the once again, the body acting of- Stellan Skarsgård. Um, yeah. No, not of Stellan Skarsgård. The, just the, the the people who came in like to- Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. As they're backing away, like given you can't yes. see their faces or anything, you, you can just tell how terrified they are. Yeah. And once yeah, again, it's yeah. just like bravo to whoever that was. I'm sure like we'll never know who that was, but- Stunt performer number yeah, seven or something. Yeah, well yeah. done, stunt yeah. performer yeah. number seven. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So are, there, are there any other like because we've we've kind of talked about Jessica and the Baron um, yeah. and a little bit about um, I've one more Paul. one more criticism really yeah please and then we can get into the stuff that that I love and you love because it's the majority of this film I really loved but I I'd like to point out the things that I think yeah hit us either with. need to be addressed or maybe like it could just be my opinions that are wrong but. Um, for some reason, they like we we said how much uh, Denny seems to understand the complexities of this story. Mm-hmm. Yet he decides to do the same thing that Lynch did, and Lynch admitted admitted a lot. But Denny also admits the um, the traitor narrative. So yeah. we he still gets betrayed. Um, Leto still gets betrayed. Well, the traitors all still get betrayed by Doctor Yui. But in the book, and I talked about this in the last recording, in the book, you find out, I think it's in the first chapter, like it's literally, it's so near the start um, that Dr. Yui 
is hiding something and basically the Atreides uncover a note saying that there is a, a tra- uh, there's a, a traitor in their midst and all the way up until the scene happens where, um, you know, Leto gets what well, they get, they all get sort of drugged and attacked by Yui. The question is, who is it? And pretty quickly you find out that it is Yui. And it's this whole scene of like, why is he doing this? Um, and how is he doing this? Because the Atreides are having these conversations like, who could it be? Who could it be? And they instantly rule out Yui because he has this thing, this particular type of conditioning that all suit doctors have to go through, um, which is what he is. He's a special type of doctor. And they go through this conditioning where basically, supposedly, they are unable to take a life or to do anything to put someone's life in risk. Um, it's like the the oath that doctors have to take, but it's like literally a conditioning. They've been yeah. brainwashed. And it's like, well, they instantly rule him out because he can't go back on that. Um, and that's kind of like, how is he doing this as you find out that it is him? And it's such an intriguing plot and it drives the story forward so much in that first sort of quarter of the book um, is when is he going to betray them? When is this going to happen? And then it feels so much more meaningful when he's the character to do it. And it feels so much sadder when you know that he had been battling with this idea this whole time, um, but he, he sacrificed everything for his wife and then he's killed and nothing comes from it. Even in this film, and I do like the way that Yui is portrayed. I don't know the actor's name. My apologies. Um, even in this film, I'm like, do I really care about Yui? There's one scene that I really like, which is the first time we see him. And it's when um, he comes to check on Paul after... Oh, no, it's just before Paul goes in for the Gomjabar scene. Um, and he checks his vitals. And they actually speak to each other in this mysterious language, which I'm pretty sure is Japanese. Um and the actor's Japanese, mm. um, but it sounds very much like Japanese to me. I could be wrong, but um, I don't speak Japanese, but it sounded Japanese. Um, and I really like that exchange. I think it's really good. Um, but I just wish that they did some foreshadowing because like the whole thing is it's like this dramatic irony, which is done in a, a really tasteful and not corny way. Um and I just, I don't know. It's Once again, it's like there are some things in this film where, like, could they have had one less, um, like, dream sequence, you know? Because most of the dream sequences, they're showing the same thing. I get the idea that it's building up to it, building up to it, and each time there's something slightly different. But could they have made space for just a few scenes where Dr. Yui is just kind of looking a little funny, you know, just a little sus, you know? Like, he... I don't know, he, he does Paul's vitals, Paul walks away, and then it just lingers on Yui looking at Paul, and you're like, hang on, what's going on here? And I just feel like that would have made it feel a little bit more earned, um, especially given it's such an important, like it's such a strong theme in that first quarter of the book, um, or third of the book. I don't know, and no one has really done it justice just yet. The, the sci-fi um, adaption of the TV show, which I'm... Have you watched that yet? I haven't seen it yet, but they, I, they do I it. bought it not long ago and yeah. texted Jack as soon as I got it. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. do it. Um, <laughs> okay, interesting. Because I, I remember he does he does still have that, and this isn't to do with the betrayal, but I guess it does still give us some of that, 
the conflict at the heart of his character when he tells Duke if you bite the tooth close enough to yeah yeah you can, well we you were can, joking about in, in the David Lynch one he's he's just like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and then he's like I'm going to end the betrayal yeah it's like, yeah Wait, what? It just it's like <laughs> ruins the yeah 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 um so like so, the, yeah. it, I I agree. But I guess it probably just comes down to it's just one of a bunch of things that I know. Just and I'm just I know I'm probably just being a loyalist, yeah. but no. But I I agree because at, uh, while you do get that conflict with his character when he is explaining, like I'm sorry, but if you do this at this exact time, you'll be able to yes take out the Baron. Um, that that's great because that means he's not just an asshole that's betraying them. He yeah. has, he clearly has reasons and he clearly feels bad about it because he's still on the side of Duke, even when, but even that like him. is serving his own means. Like, um, I, su- I suppose you're right. Yeah. Which, which is, isn't a criticism of the film at yeah. all. It's just, uh, it's, it's part of the, the story. Thing. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's just much easier to sympathize with him when you find out more about his wife's situation and like it gets explained like he, there's there's scenes in the book where he he's talking about what he's heard about how the um, Harkonnens torture people, and it's like the worst things that they could mm-hmm. possibly do. And he's just like, I can't just let her, even if I die in the process. Like I can't just let her. And you you end up empathizing with him a little bit, even if you're just like, he shouldn't do this. But you know, um, it's just harder to care when you find out after he's already betrayed them why he's done it. Yeah. And then he dies straight away. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that's my last criticism mm. is that I feel like it would have felt more earned. But I I understand that there's so much to fit into the film um, that some things they feel need to be sacrificed. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I, I want to cover, we can go with some more p- performances. Yes. Because um, I think, um, and we were talking about this before as well, but Jason Momoa is like the perfect casting he is. for Duncan. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? Because- Again, Duncan becomes very important as we move forward, yeah. which is another spoiler because he dies in this movie. <laughs> uh, but how do you feel about Jason Momoa as Duncan? Um, I said I was done with the criticisms. I, I do really like it. But I just feel like they left a little bit on the table. Um, and the, these are scenes which um, I'm sure like are not as important, but they're just some scenes in that first novel. There's a scene where Duncan comes in drunk and he like yeah, that's right. um, makes a fool of himself and the and the family. I forgot about and that. like yeah. you just imagine Jason Momoa doing that and how perfect he would be. And I'm I, the, I almost just feel like God, you got the perfect guy, and we just didn't see that much of him. Yeah. Um, but for what he did and for what like the movie could have, he he was perfect. Like. Um, fantastic physical presence obviously as as the one of the best sword fighters in in the galaxy and in, in the universe in in june um and he's supposed to be charming and and handsome which of course jason momoa is um so yeah i think they did a good job with that um i'd say it's a better casting than zendaya um okay interesting yeah which i don't think it's a bad casting um in fact i think she i take that back um i suppose i'm judging her off Okay, let's put it this way. It, it's not a obvious pick to pick Zendaya as, as Charney to me mm. because Zendaya is quite a comical character and Charney is not at all. Um, like whenever Zendaya plays characters, they're always quirky and like 
um, quite comical normally. The Spider-Man um, character. Yeah, but also yeah. in, um, what's it called, uh, the TV show? Euphoria. I haven't seen much of it, but from what I've seen, she's still very quirky. She's got a sad story, but it's, you know, very, very charismatic. And Chani, unless they're planning to do something differently, which they might be, as we said, with them focusing so much on her, she's just much more of a... She's lived her whole life in the desert. She's a very simple person. And that's part of what Paul finds so attractive about her is that when he's with her, everything seems so simple. Um, and yeah, she, she did a good job. I'm not criticizing her performance at all. It's just as a as a casting, it didn't seem as Obvious. slam dunk yeah, as, yeah, yeah, sure. as sure. both Jason Momoa and, um, well, Dave Batista, mm. definitely. Uh, Josh, Josh Brolin, yeah, yeah, Oscar Isaac, like... Yeah. Um, Timothy Chalamet, I wasn't as sure, but he's he's really good. Um, we'll see how he handles the next part because yeah. I think that will be hard. Well, not harder. I I've seen him play. I haven't seen him play characters as much as I'm fumbling with my words here. The character that he's going to play in June Part Two, hopefully, I haven't really seen him do before. But that might just be because I haven't explored him as an actor as much as as I could have. Um, yeah. He he's interesting to me, and and again, w- when he was cast, that was a I tilted my head slightly at mm. that news because I was like, Timothy I mean, Sh- like he's int- good because he's very boyish, and yes. so he gives that he has he, that youthfulness, yes, and yeah. that um kind of like naivety to him, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, the the only thing that will be interesting is like, will he? be able to physically embody the most powerful character in yes. the story. That's the main thing for me because at, the, at that point, the most high profile thing that I'd seen him in was Call Me By Your Name where mm. he's very much not yeah. the embodiment of power. And he's in that. He's in a movie, The Last King or something? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it The Last yeah. King? Um, I think that's what it's called. I haven't actually I haven't seen, seen it, it, but he but plays a like a, a knight or something in that. He's or king, maybe the king. Of, yeah, yeah. Probably the king. Um, probably the last one as well. Because um, I, I often, he, to me, he, he his slightly comic roles is kind of also yeah. what I I love him in Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up. He's, he's fantastic. Hilarious. He's yeah, one of the yeah. best parts of that movie. Yeah, yeah. He's hilarious in Lady Bird. I don't know if you've seen no, that No, I haven't seen that. He's just like the completely straight-faced, douchey yeah, musician yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. That, yeah, I can see that. And then yeah. the joke is that he can't last for longer than three seconds. It's, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It's really funny. Um, but I think the main th- having read the whole of the, that book when he was cast, I was like, good in terms of he has that youthful, mm. slightly naive, boyish thing going for him. Yeah. But it'd be really interesting to see how he embodies the Paul that we. Know I think that he could he take on a really into. creepy yes. side, which I think he'd do really well. Yes. We've already kind of seen that in flashes. Um, he can definitely play a dark character, but whether he can play, you know, no, I I back it to be honest. I think yeah. I've seen enough to be like, yeah, you can definitely do this. Um, and he's a terrific actor. He's fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think there are any. Uh, we covered the Baron. That was the other one that I had. Um, in mind um, and Duncan um, so is there anything else that you want to cover in terms of let me just have a quick read through um, okay so this is an interesting one mm-hmm. before the the um, like opening credits even start we hear the line dreams are messages from the deep yeah um, and it's spoken in the 
the Sardaukar voice, which is an incredibly interesting decision and one that I really hope we get more information on in part two because we didn't see that much of the Sardaukar. And out of all the voices to say it, like you could have had um, a, it's said in Chakopsa, which is the Fremen native tongue. Um, you could have had, well, the easy thing to do would have just had Chani say it, mm, right? Yeah. But, or, or James even, that could have been really impactful because um, like, oh, actually, I just thought of something I want to talk about as well. Um, but yeah, just really interesting. Just, I, I don't know, just noteworthy at least. To, yeah. And just this whole idea of the focusing on dreams because they, they use that word a lot. and As opposed to visions. visions but they yeah. use visions too. Mm. Um, so it's just an interesting one that... Um, but yeah, uh, on on that line, that, like on dreams, um, there's this good line that um, uh, Duncan says to Paul right before, when when Paul confides in him that he's worried that Duncan's going to die, and Duncan says, "Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake because that's when we make things happen." Um, and I think that's a really cool insight into Duncan's character and the way that he is just completely that line completely juxtaposes everything but they but he says it in a way that makes it feel significant yeah um and i think it's an interesting idea because it's something that paul does go on to battle with um this idea of like getting lost in his dreams slash visions um and then actually living in reality and doing things that actually Mm. have significance in that moment um because he definitely drifts off into a place where he's just like everything's already been foretold. Like there's nothing I can do that will make things happen. So nothing I do actually matters. And so Duncan saying that is an interesting juxtaposition to sort of one of the themes that we see later on in the film. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with part two of this conversation on Saturday. So check back on this podcast feed over the weekend to catch the next episode. If you want to hear more of Jack, you can find his music on Spotify or you can check out his two podcasts, The Artist Notepad and The Self-Care Project, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and to share it with a friend. Five-star written reviews on Apple Podcasts really mean so much more than you realise. So if you're able to do that and contribute to this podcast reaching more people, then that really would be amazing. If you want to get in touch and chat about Dune or any other film that we've talked about on this show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that just love films. My first short story collection called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to Jack for joining me on this show once again, to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you on Saturday for an extra episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Mm-hmm.